All right, welcome back. The Canadian Council of Innovators is calling on Alberta's Premier to intervene because a regulatory group uh, in our province, a powerful regulatory group, is trying to stop workers not registered with it from using the title software engineer. The key word here is engineer. Um, so the Council of Canadian Innovators president says tech companies uh, are not okay with this because they fear hiring good talent and not being able to ask people to apply for a job to become a software engineer is going to be tougher if the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists in Alberta keeps insisting that software engineers must sign up with that regulatory group to use that title. By not being able to use that term, it will really mean that they'll struggle to find the best talent to fill positions that they're currently hiring for. And in the innovation economy, highly skilled workers really is the jet fuel that create billion-dollar companies. And I get this concern, because if you want to hire somebody, say, from overseas or somebody from Silicon Valley to fill a key role within your tech company in Alberta, you're going to post the job as a software engineer, because that's what the rest of the world uses as the job description. Now, the province says it's concerned that Alberta's competitiveness could be impeded by this, and the province is encouraging the Council of Canadian Innovators and the Association of Professional Engineers and Geoscientists of our province to come together for a solution. Now, I'm highlighting this news story today as a jumping point into a broader discussion on what other speed bumps need to be smoothed out, so to speak, to keep Alberta's economy growing. So to help me dig into this, uh, Scott Crockett is joining me this afternoon. Scott is VP of Communications with the Business Council of Alberta. Scott, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Ted. I'm uh, thrilled to join you on this uh, Friday afternoon. I love chatting with you, Scott. You're, you're one of the first people we thought of when we wanted to talk about this, because I know the Business Council of Alberta, uh, you come up with many ideas on kind of smoothing speed bumps like this, right? We absolutely do. And, uh, you know, we think of our job as uh, curating great public policy solutions for the kind of for the good of all Albertans. And, um, you know, when you talk about the economy growing, Ted, the good news is in Alberta, our economy is still booming very, very strongly at the moment, which is which is great news. And that's in the face of what what could be some real uh, some real dark skies. Uh, internationally, globally, uh, with the, with the threat of uh, maybe even a global recession uh, coming in the not so distant future, Alberta is looking like a, a bit of a safer port in that storm. That's good to hear. That's good to hear, Scott, for sure. Um, when it comes to, um, it may seem like a small issue, you know, the whole term software engineer and using that in the job description where you're trying to woo, you know, good talent here to kind of keep boosting and keep our, our economy chugging along. Um, but little things do mean something, don't they, Scott? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the, the software engineer one is not an issue that I've looked into a, a huge amount, but I think it's indicative of kind of a broader yeah. basket of issues, which is credential recognition. Yeah. And, uh, and this is one of the things that absolutely is a speed bump, is a governor to our economy moving as quickly as possible. And I will say that, you know, some good ground has been made both by the government and professional associations in recent years to try and smooth this over. But, you know, it's really simply the idea that if we're inviting people to come to Alberta, we want them to, to be able to do their highest and best use, you know, to contribute to the economy in their best possible way. And it's also just good for from a human decency kind of perspective to have people able to do the profession that they'd really like to do. 
And uh, right now, I'd say we sort of have a patchwork approach between governing bodies, some self-governing bodies. Some are providing really smooth pathways for people to come from other provinces or even other countries into their professions. And in other cases, it's just taking too long and there can be too many bumps still. Yeah. First, when you talk about credentials, I'm thinking of, you know, doctors, uh, you know, lawyers, that type of thing, right? That's what you're referring to? Yeah, certainly. And but right on down the list of professions, yeah. you know, we could look yeah. at build, building trades, uh, carpenters and pipe fitters or, or yeah. red seal chefs, all, you know, all those sorts of things. I think we want to be able to get those people into into positions, you know, as quickly as possible. And one of the things that I sometimes point to with this is, you know, there are other places in the world like Australia and New Zealand that have really robust credential recognition programs between those two countries. And, you know, it's almost easier to move between those two countries than it can be to move between two Canadian provinces and do wow. the same job. And something should just tell us, you know, that that doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. No, no kidding. No kidding. So I had no idea it was that difficult going province to province, uh, you know, to use your credentials. It certainly can be, and and you know I will say that there's often there's often some historic or good reason, or at least there was a good reason behind why the credentials could be a little bit different. Maybe the codes are a little bit different in one yeah. province or another, or maybe a nurse is allowed to do certain things in one province that they're not allowed to do in another. But I think as we step back from this, you know, Ted, if you call up any business in Alberta today and you ask them what's the biggest governor on their growth, what's slowing it down, uh, I'll bet you, you know, eight out of ten of them will tell you. Um, talent, yeah. talent and labor, yeah. labor availability. So we, you know, when you talk about speed bumps affecting our economy, that's uh, probably the biggest issue. You know, I often say when you're in a labor shortage, there are only really two ways out, and that's people and productivity. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, people being the idea that we could bring more people in to fill the jobs, or productivity. You know, simply the economic term for for getting more value from an hour worked, which is a good thing as well. Now, unfortunately, Canada as a whole has been actually pretty poor at growing our productivity uh, over the last number of years, many years. And we've kind of been masking that by bringing in lots of immigration, which is great. Over the course of COVID, though, uh, immigration really, really dropped and productivity didn't really, really increase. And now we're kind of squeezed from both sides. Okay, Scott, you mentioned a second or two ago um, that good progress is being made on the whole kind of recognizing credentials um, uh, kind of issue to deal with here. But what more can we do, do you think, to kind of get us even further along? Well, I think that we need to um, establish some sort of uh, timelines, some fixed yeah. timelines to say, uh, you know, this is what's a reasonable length of time to uh, to recognize someone's credentials. Also, as a you know, as a society, sort of, you know, as people who are listening to this and involved in in uh, public life, we should just sort of adopt the feeling in our gut that it's not going to be okay anymore to have somebody that's got a PhD doing a really entry-level job yeah, um, yeah. just because that came from somewhere else or because we're not familiar with him. We just got to get a lot better at, at streamlining those. You know, I think there are specific examples um, in, in specific places. And th- there's one other thing that we can do, which is um, the province could do more to identify what kinds of new Canadians or new workers we'd like in Alberta based on their skill sets and sort of nominate them for a fast track to say, you know, we need more truck drivers or we need more tech workers or that kind of thing. Yeah. Interesting ideas, Scott, as always. I always appreciate your insight. Thank you for this. Well, thanks a lot, Ted. Nice to speak with you. Uh, you as well. Have a good weekend. All right, thank you. That's uh, that's Scott Crockett, VP of Communications with the Business Council of Alberta, talking about ways we can go even further, right, to smooth out any speed bumps that uh, may be 
potentially impacting Alberta's economy to continue chugging along. And that whole talent retention and talent attraction keeps coming up again and again and again from many, many, many different groups when it comes to the economy. a chance to focus in on Alberta economics. Rob Roach joins us as he always does on Friday afternoons. Rob is Deputy Chief Economist and Managing Editor of ATB Economics. Rob, how are you? I'm doing well, Ted. How are you? I'm very well. I understand you have a presentation coming up, my friend, and that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, so next week, uh, Calgary Economic Developments very kindly invited myself and others out to a big economic outlook on, on Wednesday, October 19th. And they wanted me to talk a little bit about sort of the big picture of what's what's uh, where's the Alberta economy going, and you know we often focus on the short term, and rightly so. There's a lot going on right now, inflation, interest rates, but it got me thinking about some of the longer term challenges, some of which we've talked about on the hoop before. And so yeah. I've come up with five that I think are particularly pressing to be thinking about now and over the long term. Okay, number five: aging of the population. Yeah, not a new one. We've known about this for decades, and we are taking action on it, but arguably not enough. Um, And it's a good thing. It's good that people are living longer, and there's lots of positives, but I don't think we're fully prepared for the economic and social changes that we're going to have to adapt to. So that's number five. Okay, number four, technology. Yeah, another one that is probably obvious, but always worth remembering is just how much this is going to reshape everything in our economy as workers as businesses um, as consumers so another big one is definitely technology for sure number three is labor shortages they're going to be getting worse Uh, number two is an interesting one energy transition yeah and this one again very familiar to everyone and whether we like it or not you're kind of for or against the future of alberta oil and gas and i'm for it (laughs) Um, i'd love us to be pumping as much as we can uh, as long as the world is demanding it but there are forces lined up against that and limited capacity to get it to market. And, and again, we're making adjustments. It's just there's a lot more work to do if we're going to get ahead of that uh, going forward. No, for sure, for sure. And number one on your list of the top five things kind of a long-term facing our uh, Alberta economy is eroding social cohesion. Yeah, and that uh, you know goes beyond economics, of course. Yeah. But what makes our economy really work is the trust between people, all the billions of interactions we we do with each other in a a free market, we have to trust each other. And I think a lot of people are noticing that that is eroding. We're just, we're more polarized, we're more, something is amiss. And so that's a big challenge, but um, getting to just trust each other again or more uh, is going to be pretty important going forward. Good stuff. Thank you, Rob. Love picking your brain about these things. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ted. Have a good day. You too. All right, bye-bye, bye-bye. Uh, the top five problems, again, according to Rob Roach, the Deputy Chief Economist at ATB Economics. Uh, number five, aging of the population. Number four, technology, uh, labor shortages. And number three, number two, energy transition. And number one, social or eroding social cohesion. Research happening right now out of Olds College in Alberta. The research is um, an ongoing project. It's going to be a multi-year type of thing to measure the results. But essentially, plants are cleaning water 
taking out of it, you know, whatever we don't want in there so you can drink it again. The research right now is on, uh, you know, water beside feedlots in the province, cleaning, you know, kind of all of the, you know, the manure and fertilizers and whatnot that end up in this water and making it drinkable again. But think about the uses of this if it's successful, simply having plants floating on an island, you know, with their roots dangling into the water, removing the things that you do not want in there. Well, Dan Karen is joining me this afternoon to kind of explain all of this to me. Dan is an eco-hydrologist and instructor in the Workland School of Agriculture Technology out of Olds College. Dan, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's uh, great to be with you. Uh, tell me about this research, Dan. Um, it, it sounds like something so simple, but I, I'm just imagining that we could use this for very cool things down the road. But so how how are you trying to figure out if plants can, you know, remove things that we don't want in water out of the water? Well, you kind of nailed it there. It is it is quite simple, right? What we're doing is we're really exploiting uh, a natural process that happens every day in our wetlands. Um, and in our riparian areas, which are the, the areas right beside our water banks, our rivers and streams. And so uh, plants naturally uh, take up uh, a whole variety of different contaminants, depending on the plants. Uh, most all plants take up nutrients, right, which is your nitrogen, your phosphorus, uh, potassium, and, and a whole host of other uh, smaller nutrients out of the water. And so... What we're doing is we're really exploiting this natural process, and uh, we're we're covering these uh, these ponds, these contaminated ponds with uh, these islands, and we're uh, growing plants in these islands. And those plants are uh, establishing root systems underneath the surface of the water and taking up a lot of those contaminants. I see. Okay, Dan, when you say islands, do you mean like a floating structure that has like the plants kind of dangling below type thing or Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so it's uh so it's a floating island. Um it's a patented technology that uh is provided to us through uh Tanis Conservation uh services. And so um they're about eight and a half by four feet uh in size and there's a soil uh, media that sits kind of inside of the island and then we plug that soil media with a a number of different plant species and they 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 grow on top of the surface of the water as if they were in uh a soil that uh kind of like hydroponics if you could think of it that way yeah yeah yeah. i was i was just gonna ask is it similar to the way we grow food you know hydroponically that's interesting yeah it's so do different plants remove different things from the water yeah absolutely right so uh we found that some plant species um can remove uh uh, heavy metals right and so they're using uh they're uh or or and and other non-metals and so they're using these um uh islands in the mining sector for example yeah one of the contaminants in the mining sector is selenium and so they've found uh great success using these islands to remove selenium from the water uh in our case we're mostly looking at nutrients um and uh and some heavy metals and some other contaminants that make the water 
uh, undesirable for for reuse on the farm and and the feedlot operation. Uh, but uh, um, there's there's a whole wide variety of different uh, types of uses for these islands, and yeah. so it really depends on what contaminants you're trying to target, and that'll that'll uh, um, uh, help you determine what. Uh, plant species you should be using. Yeah, I should remind everyone, I'm, I'm chatting with Dan Karen this afternoon. Dan is an eco-hydrologist and instructor out of the Workland School of Agriculture Technology at Olds College. And we're talking about using plants to remove things from water that we don't want in water, essentially. That's boiling it down to the to the real uh, you know nuts and bolts here, Dan. And so how how are you able to figure out, Dan, how effective these plants are at removing, you know, what you're targeting from the water. So uh, what we've uh, what we've done is we've set up uh, an experimental design that allows us to. Uh, uh, so we monitor these ponds. We've monitored these ponds for the last two seasons, uh, which is from spring to fall, and we collect a baseline data set basically. And so we really characterize what these ponds look like without the islands in place. And then we've installed the islands. We did that at the end of September. And so now over the next two years, we'll collect uh, a really robust data set to show us what these ponds uh, look like with the treatments um, and the treatment being the islands on the ponds. And so uh, that's, that's basically how it's done. And so we've, uh, we're collecting uh, very large data sets with a lot of different variables so we can really try and isolate um, the impact that these islands are having on the ponds. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so obviously your work is on, you know, ponds uh, near feedlots and and trying to remove, you know, undesirables out of the water and targeting there. But a few minutes ago, you you mentioned, you know, mining operations, you know, if you want to use plants to remove things from the water connected to mining operations. I mean, it seems endless, the kind of applications to uh, what you're researching here, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, any kind of contained water system uh, is really uh, where these islands could be applicable. They're being used in uh, urban stormwater. So the ponds that we see in our cities that are kind of collecting all of that uh, surface runoff from the rainfall, uh, they've got applications there. They've got applications in the mining sector. Um, uh, we're, We're looking at a at agriculture is our particular focus for this project. And so feedlots have these large bodies of water, um, these ponds, these contained ponds that fill up from the the runoff that comes off of the feedlot operation. And it typically just sits there and, and evaporates, right? Because it's contaminated and it doesn't, it's not really useful for uh, anything else. And so, our goal is to try and use these islands in a way um, that we can improve the water quality and hopefully make this water uh, more useful. Yeah. Where did you get the idea to kind of poke around and explore this, Dan? Well, I came into this research at Olds College. Uh, this is the third phase of the, the research at, uh, that's been ongoing at Olds College. And so um, uh, our, a former Olds College employee... Uh, Ruth Elvestead, she engaged with Stephen Tannis from Tannis Conservation Services, and they started looking at uh, 
how well these islands were performing in uh, controlled greenhouse environments. Mm -hmm. And so when I came into the project, we're in phase three now. This is kind of the field scale, real world application of these islands. Um, And so uh, I can't take credit for the idea. Well, the idea of phytoremediation, which is using plants to clean up contaminated soils and waters is um, has been around for a long time, right? Because yeah, we've known that yeah. we've known that plants have that capability. And so I can't take credit for that idea, but this particular idea was uh, uh, started at Olds College in about 2015. And I came into it uh, about three years ago. Very cool. Dan, I, I appreciate your time this afternoon. Uh, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Ted. It was great talking to you. I hope uh, I answered some of your questions and, uh, <laughs> Thanks, uh, thanks for the interest. That's Dan Karen, eco-hydrologist and instructor in the Workland School of Agriculture Technology out of Olds College uh, in the province of Alberta. If you go to the Olds College website, Olds College website, and you search floating island technology, um, you'll find out all about this cool research that's happening. Um, it's oldscollege.ca, olds, like with a, like, you know, plural, O-L-D-S college.ca, and then just click on the uh, the search field there and type in floating island, and you'll get this research that's happening right now. It's pretty cool what they're doing. And they're also testing the efficacy of different plants, you know, which plant cleans the water the best, which plant, as you heard Dan talking about, takes, uh, you know, like heavy metals out of the water, which plant takes, you know, carbon more out of the water, which plant takes, you know, whatever, uh, salts and, and other dissolved organic matter, on and on and on and on. So this is very cool. Think about all the stormwater, you know, storage locations around, you know, the cities of Edmonton and Calgary, right? Get plunk one, two, three, four of these islands in there and clean that water. You know, take bad stuff out of it before it gets released into the river, you know? Anyway, the applications of this are, are fantastic, fantastic. So I'm glad that research is happening right here in Alberta.